listeners, this is Monica from the future. You are about to listen to an episode that is about film unions, but there's been a few important things that have happened since we recorded this episode that we just wanted you to take note of. First is that the Nabisco strike, which is mentioned at the end of our podcast, has officially ended. Second is that the potential IATSE strike vote, which is the vote that decides whether or not IATSE will actually strike, had not happened at the point in time that we recorded. It has proceeded forward uh, since. So that means that union members have now received ballots. And they are currently voting whether or not they will strike. Some IATSE chapters, like the board of local 600 cinematographers, they have voted unanimously yes to strike. Others' ballots are not back yet, and we are still waiting to see whether or not they will strike. In addition, there are many groups that are not directly involved in the IATSE strike, but that are involved in the film industry, such as the DGA, which is the Directors Guild, SAG-AFTRA, which is the Screen Actors Guild, the WGA, which is the Writers Guild, and the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, which have all issued official statements in support of IATSE solidarity should there be a strike. And now back to our regularly scheduled programming. with drinking and swearing, except for not for me. It's a little bit early in the morning where I'm at. My name is not Christopher Maverick. This is Katya Gorecki once again, um, but you cannot call me Matt. And I am back with my wonderful co-hosts, Anna and Monica. How y'all doing? Pretty good. This, this, I think, is the first episode since you became co-host, Monica, that the three of us are running the show. It's true. So, another historic episode. We're doing like a, it's like, it's like the, uh, Fox Podcast Lady Takeover. <laughs> I don't know how we're going to use our power to talk that. about really serious things. I mean, I, we, we kind of are this week. Yeah, uh, Monica, maybe you want to talk about what what are we're recording this week? Yeah. Um, so I mentioned this last week, um, and I know there was some debate as to if it was going to really be this week or not, but it is really this week. Uh, this week we are talking about unions. We are talking about uh, unions in the film industry, most specifically, but we're also looking at the ways that um, our discussions of unions in general or unions in the film industry could help us understand unions for people who may not be parts of unions, may not be familiar with unions. Um, And we're doing it this week because uh, the IATSE, which is the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, is very, very close to its first industry-wide strike in the union history. So like since the beginning of film. And so like that feels like a pretty big deal that we should talk about what the conditions actually are right now that would push uh, workers to the first industry-wide strike ever. Yeah. And to talk about this really interesting and historic moment, we've brought on a few guests. Uh, I know what has themselves. Maybe we start with uh, Sean. Hi, I'm Sean O'Brien. I am a PhD student at State in Detroit. My dissertation, somewhat near, is on labor in the comics industry. Uh, I am involved as the bargaining chair in my graduate unit. I sit on the legislative for Helio, uh, that is the higher ed. Awesome. Yeah, super excited to get, we were actually joking before the show, we, we were super excited to get a labor historian on finally. For all we talk about labor things on the show, we actually haven't had a labor historian on, which seems kind of shocking. Uh, but we also have a, another guest on today who is actually more directly involved with, uh, with the union um, and the potential strike efforts. And so E. Hey, um, I'm Elissa Alcala. I, I am actually in two unions local to California. I'm in 705, which is the costumer union, and I'm in 892, which is the costume designers union. Um, there's a whole bunch of different unions. I'm not sure if you guys have talked about all of them before, but basically there's a union for each kind of department in film and industry, and uh, everyone calls me, which is why you'll hear everyone refer to me as, oh, hello. Um, I mean, I think that might actually be a really good place to start, because as much as we've talked about labor, 
labor for people to actually understand the breakdown of unions in the film industry. Like there are local chapters, there are national chapters, there are chapters split up by department. And actually talking about which of these people are going to go on strike this uh, potentially. So it's uh, I guess it's all local LA unions and the three nationals that overlap. Is that correct? Uh, yes, I believe so. It's all of the locals in Los Angeles. Um, so it's local IOPSI, but it's also IOPSI, um, which is made up of a whole bunch of different unions that affect elsewhere. So like, I know that the New York chapters stand in solidarity with us. And I know some of the unions up in Canada, they will also strike if he strikes. Um, so I think for people to understand the gravity of the situation, then this is sort of a like all all of your favorite film and TV shows will shut down. Yes, that that's the, the ultimate if things are not met with an agreement, which I mean, all of us kind of like as much as uh, we kind of depend on our, our content, like for the structure of our lives for our escapism. And so to think about all these things stopping is like kind of a big deal. But I want most specifically for you to talk about why, uh, why people are actually threatening the monster. Okay, so this I actually was like, okay, I have to make sure that I have my information here because as with everything nowadays there's a whole lot of misinformation and there is a whole bunch of just like I, I don't know like rumor mills about what exactly people are asking for so I wanted to make sure that I had an answer to this question um, and basically what's happening is there's a whole bunch of requests that were put out on the table when the committees kind of went in to negotiate with the producers and like the heads of different um, production studios and right now, the main things, there's like, I would say, actually, I could count them. There's like one, two, three, like four big, big topics that uh, unions are very united on in the sense of like, they would like these four things to be addressed and they would like these four things to change. The unions are asking for these four big topics to change. And the things are, the thing is, is that the production companies and the producers are kind of being like, well, no, we don't see why um, which is why we're now at the point of striking. And actually, I believe I last I heard is that um, we could all be voting to strike um, as early as Monday. And in fact, I'm getting emails about it right now being like, please sign up for text message alerts to let you know when we are going to vote to strike. Um, so it is basically imminent that we are going to vote. Um, interesting thing about the voting, though, and kind of the scary thing, too, that I think is about voting is, is that each of the unions that make up the IOP uh, union has to vote to strike and you vote yes or no. If you vote yes, that means we're voting to strike. But each union has to have 75% of their membership vote yes. And if 75% doesn't vote yes, that means that we're not striking because we all have to be together as the, it's a, as Monica said, it, it's all of the unions coming together to vote on this. So if one union doesn't get enough votes, we aren't going to strike. Um, so it's a really, 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 really deal. And it's kind of a really big turning not even a, it is it, I guess it's a kind of turning point because if we don't all come together and vote yes the producers are going to know that we don't stand in solidarity and therefore we are not going to ask for things like this in the future and they're not going to take us seriously so it is kind of a really really big deal um, right now and there's a lot of kind of tension and I would say like everyone's a little scared and everyone's a little hesitant right now because the thing is is the producers know that they kind of hold the upper hand right now because we were just not working for a whole six months. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people are scared to vote yes because they need the money. It sounds like it's a kind of almost catch-22 because in, from my experience from labor organizing in a very different context, striking is the nuclear option. It opens you to a lot of unknowns. So I can see why people would be hesitant. On the other hand, because of how big and how, at least from what it sounds like, how big and how diverse the like working conditions are from within all of the unions that need to agree on this. Like, yeah, like, the, like not having solidarity and not having a united front against producers is a huge risk long term. Yeah, which is why you know a lot of people sending out a lot of information and just being like, look, we understand you're scared to vote yes because money is a thing for everyone. And, you know, we were out of work for a lot of us were out of work even longer than six months. I was very fortunate to um, be on one of the first shows that came back right after COVID. I think that we were like the second show that came back. So I've been I, I had roughly about I'd say five and a half six months off of work but some people didn't go back to work like if you look at the cost of living in LA it's like it's it, it was it, it hurt a lot of people 
to the fact that we're only just now finally getting back to like being really busy in the industry and people actually working, a lot of people want to keep that momentum forward. But the things that we're asking for aren't crazy, which is why it's kind of absurd that the producers and the heads of studios aren't necessarily for this. Um, and I guess I can kind of, you guys want to know all of like the, the four, I would say, main points that we're asking for? Yeah, that would be awesome. One of the things is we're asking for a 10 hour turnaround across all fronts. Each department has roughly a different, what's called a turnaround. So basically what a turnaround is, is when you end your day, you're supposed to have a certain period of time off before you have to come back in. So like, sleep. <laughs> yes. And for costumers, our turnaround is nine to 10 hours. So if it's depending on where we're shooting. So if it's studio to studio, it's a nine hour turnaround from when you get off. So from when you clock out to when you have to be back, you're supposed to have nine hours, which doesn't seem like it seems that seems like it's doable, but you wouldn't believe how often you are asked to not make your turnaround. It happens all the time. For transportation, it's even less than that. And I don't know off the top of my head, but I want to say they, it's, if they don't, they're not guaranteed an eight hour, even a nine hour turnaround. Theirs is a lot less. Their turnaround is nothing, which is crazy because Transpo is in charge of taking us if we're on location. They have to move the, the trucks and the stuff that needs to be moved from set to set. And they get such a short turnaround that, and they're driving heavy machinery. So it's it's kind of mind-blowing, which is why we're asking for a 10-hour turnaround everywhere across all boards. During COVID, one of the things that most studios brought up uh, or put into effect was this idea of a rolling lunch, which basically means that they don't break us for lunch. We're in charge of breaking ourselves. So what will happen, lunch will be usually instead of it only being like uh, some places, lunches are 30 minutes and some places, lunches are an hour. It just depends on the show you're on or movie or whatever you're on. Um, right now, they're not actually giving us a set break time. So lunch is usually six hours after you start, start work. Uh, crew call. And what's happening right now is they're not breaking us at six hours. It's our job to break ourselves. So lunch will be open for a longer period of time. And we're in charge of getting ourselves sick, which means we have to like take turns breaking for lunch, which means sometimes people get left on set by themselves to take care of a job that should have three people. So we we're asking for an end of rolling lunches. Another thing they're asking for is a living wage for a number of positions in in the unions that are not making like basically they're not making minimum wage in the state of California. So we're asking that they raise that pay. It's nothing absurd, right? Another thing we're asking for is when Netflix and Hulu and all of that became a thing, they are called uh, and there's new media contracts. And on those new media contracts, is they were able to negotiate because it's a, a new thing. They were able to be like, well, we can't pay people what they're used to being paying because we're new and we don't understand how we work yet. So we want to do this, but everyone's going to have to take like a different pay rate kind of. And so... We're asking for basically new media kind of no longer to be considered new media. Like at this point, new media has been around for, for a while. Um, so we're like, no, you guys should get on board with what a normal pay rate should be. Um, I know just working on Netflix, Hulu, uh, any streaming platform, I've been paid anywhere from $19 an hour to getting $42 an hour. And that's just it. There's no consistent kind of rate for new media. Um, and I think that they're basically asking is they they think that they should still be considered new media and we're asking for that basically to be like no let's get rid of that so yeah i mean those are the pretty much the four things we're asking for across all of iopsy and i mean as as someone else who's worked in in film for the listeners who don't know i've worked as a, a non-union costume designer and as a union pa for a few years now and everything you just described is a uh, like it's all something that i've personally experienced in my years. I, you know, remember receiving a check for a 60 hour work week that was $350. I remember uh, someone on my crew falling asleep at the wheel and having a really terrible accident on the way home. I don't know. And so maybe this is a question for, for everybody else. How how much are you guys aware of the way that the film industry works or, or any of these? Is this invisible labor or is this something that you guys are aware of? And the same way that we still sort of sometimes consume fast fashion, even though we know that like a, a child in a foreign country has made that shirt for like two 
cents <laughs> and, and we still buy it anyway. Is, is there like, are we ignoring the issues at hand because we love the things that we consume? Or is it that we really need to be getting the word out about the conditions that film workers uh, are in every day? I, I am a massive weirdo. Um, so I I originally, you know, when I was younger, thought, oh, it would be so cool to work behind the scenes of a film. And then I read, especially in television, the amount of hours everyone's putting in. Everyone. And I was like, nope, this seems horrible. Um, I don't, I don't like, and I, I've seen actors, though I, to, to like uh, your point, Mog, I've seen actors like talk about their working conditions and how much they work. And I've seen comments on the internet because that's a wonderful place to be talking about, oh, they get paid so much money. How dare they complain about their, you know, 14 hour shoots and like not having a life? How, how dare they be angry? And so I, I think that like, even though there might be some awareness by some people, there's also, I think that also like it seems like sometimes people boil film and television down to like who we see in front of the camera sometimes um i feel like the writer's strike um that happened when i was in college was like the, one of the first times that people realized oh there are people behind the scenes who make the tv shows i like and when they're not writing things it's real bad oh yeah i remember everything just ended like four episodes early they were like and we're done now <laughs> like it, very much the same way that like your your covid content you were like and i guess that's the season finale because you you can't do anything without that <laughs> Yeah, I think I think the point about that you just made about actors being like the more visible, the more visible to the average person in the public in terms of like what labor in like film and television is, is on point. Because when I think about like my own awareness about kind of what Monica was asking about is, and I'm assuming mine's probably I think on this podcast I am one of the least like film centered people. So I'm assuming my my awareness is probably average to somewhat above average in the sense of like. I am a cultural studies person who works on media. So even though I don't work on film, I'm around people who work on film. And I have basically, I, I know that there are people working in the background. I know what some of those jobs look like in a very broad terms. I don't necessarily know what the labor conditions are. And then from a union perspective, one of the reasons why I was really excited about doing this show is because my perception is that the way that unions in film and television and in media generally function is different from a lot of other labor unions because there's a lot more gig work. Um, and I honestly could not, even though I've spent, you know, a fair amount of time in and around unions for the last several years, I don't know what the, the labor implications are of that particular kind of working situation. Yeah, that's something I might be able to speak to a little bit. The eclipsing and the erasure of the hard labor involved in film and media production, it's pretty standard to what happens all across the board, right? That's, that's part of how this works is whoever kind of holds the reins of labor erases those smaller, more uh, theoretically replaceable people. At least that's the narrative that push. Um, if a film loses its lead actor or something, it shuts down. But if it loses its costume, at least theoretically, they'll just get a new one and be able to keep going. And that's the value that they've placed on these various positions. So when these things sort of happen, that erasure is purposeful. And it's even if you just stay and watch a film's credit, right, you'll see names kind of show up bigger in what order. And as you get down to these labors, they're further and further down in larger and larger uh, with less emphasis on them. And that's that's part of this erasure. And I, I want to plug um, Monica's blog um, that introduced this topic on boxpodcast.com because I thought her point about credits, which um, parallels what you just said, Sean, was extremely brilliant about how um, even like when you watch TV, um, you know, like it, it gets fast forwarded through so they can make it to the new programming. Or it's skipped entirely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do want to say and shout out to my dad who taught me the importance of sitting in the theater and watching the credits and appreciating the work that goes into every aspect of the job because we wouldn't have film without them. So there is one person out there who appreciates everyone's work. Oh, thanks, Hannah's dad. That's <laughs> <laughs> off to Hannah's dad. I also wondering, I think that, that your point, Sean and Monica, about the erasure is really is really important. And I also it makes me think of like as as a member of the public, like my exposure to a lot of these these jobs is actually through film and television, right? When we when we make media about media. And not only are those roles often in the background, but they're often silent. Uh, and they're just basically like extras that are just sort of like there. And like, we're, we're more interested in the actors and the producers and like the quote unquote big wigs. When in reality, like, you know, I was just thinking with like, when you're talking about trans, like, you know, transportation and getting things from point A to point B, like if set, if like, if like essential set pieces aren't, aren't transported where they need to be, the movie doesn't happen in the same way if the actor doesn't show up. Like, just because these are not the things that we emphasize in the public, it's like these are not in some ways as essential, if not 
potentially more essential than right. than some of the other roles. And it, when I think about it from an educational and like higher education union context, it's like the person who does facilities at a university is just as important as the person teaching the classroom. Because if my classroom is not like if if is not functioning the way it's supposed to, like the chairs are broken, you know, the AC is not working, the you know the projection system is not working, I can't teach. So the person who does facilities and maintenance and all that other stuff is like just as important. Like I can't do my job if they're not able to do their job. Um, and I would, I mean, it sounds like it's a very similar thing in film. I would say that almost we're more important than the actors, right. the producers, and anyone above the line. Only because, like, going back to the whole actor thing, is that people are able to hook on to this idea of an actor. They're able to look up to them. They're able to have crushes on them. They're able to be like, I want to dress like that person and all of this stuff. And the thing is, is that the actor wouldn't be the actor if it wasn't for everyone else who makes them, who puts on their makeup, who does their hair, who gets them dressed. They wouldn't be able to step into that role. There's, there's life there's the way things are filmed and all of that helps tell the story and helps the actor perform at their best. And if they had none of that, wouldn't have an actor. So if we all did strike, and that's the thing, is, is why this is so crazy right now, I would even argue, is, is that if we do strike again, like not only are you guys not getting like new media like the public isn't getting new media but like this affects everyone else too this affects the actors this affects the directors this affects the producers like they don't get to be who they get to enjoy being because we're not gonna die and let them do that anymore so it i mean yeah it's that and then also going back 90 percent of the time she stay and watch the credits i would say that's even only only recently have they gotten better about actually having the majority of the people who worked on the film not everyone even when you stay and watch and you see all of those people listed, that's still not everyone who worked on the film. And especially not in TV. Yeah. Yeah, the same thing happens in the gaming industry and it's actually been a growing conversation is that a lot of people, especially researchers, people who do QA testing, basically making sure the game works, um, are often not credited in the video game and especially like people who leave after a project because the gaming industry uses a lot of contractors. So people whose contract ends before the game launches, even if they spent the last four or five years working on that game and put tons of amount of work into that often won't appear in the credits because they're no longer current employees, which A, is just like bad form professionally, in my opinion, uh, but also has implications for their job prospects because it's harder for them to basically say like, oh yeah, I worked on that really high level. You know, I worked on Diablo or whatever it is. And they're like, well, why are you in the credits? And it's like, well, because just because they should be. be on the list. Yeah. Right, exactly. I, I mean, I want to go sort of up one step further. Like, I also have this perspective of my partner is a an indie producer. And a lot of times, the reasons that these crappy rates get thrown on us is because the studio, the new media uh, that E is talking about that isn't so new, um, isn't paying a lot for the finished property. And so then the reason producers are sort of pushing these rates on us is because they still have to make this project turn a profit to pay back investors. And if the streaming platform that's paying you is paying you half of what that movie costs to make, then that's coming out of that producer's pocket. And and so obviously, like this is a system that is being brought to our that's completely broken and is being brought to our attention by sort of the people at the bottom of the pyramid. But the problem is really starting at the top. And it's really starting a lot with new media, because the more we expand into more forms of content, the less people are paying for those forms because the amount of money hasn't necessarily changed just the way that it's being divided has. And that's like also a really big issue that needs to be fixed. And especially in order to make these demands happen. So accountability on new media. And the thing is, is right now with because of COVID, the whole industry is being re-examined and re-looked at. Because the thing is, is that what these new media platforms and what studios even have realized and why so many studios are jumping onto a new media platform is they've realized they can make the exact same thing that would cost them billions of dollars, millions of dollars per thing. They can make it for less and put it on a streaming platform 
and not have to pay as much and be like, well, it's on a streaming platform. We're not charging for it. We're only charging a monthly subscription. Like we're not we're not putting it in the movie theater. We're not going to make the same type of money. Therefore, but then what they're expecting is literally the exact same product come out. It sounds like basically the Amazonification yes. of film. From what I'm understanding, the studios are po- are in, in this scenario, either getting or aiming to get the same profit margin, but lowering their overhead and basically their excuse is oh the low because because the overall cost is lower we can't pay you as much it's like well the the cut in cost should come from lack of like lower overhead not from basically gouging your workers salaries i i actually was just reading an article right before we started recording about how um paramount is thinking more about focusing on streaming rather than theatrical releases partially because they realize they can put certain things on streaming and not have to pay the amount of marketing fees um and they could save money that way as well so like um yeah just it, it was a really like interesting look as we've, we've seen like the choices like disney has made over the past year um versus like the other streaming services and i will link that in the show notes there's a bit of a historical difficulty here with the streaming service and for a company to to move their product from one platform to another the the folks from scrubs they have a podcast going where they talk about the production and development there's a lot of kind of behind the scenes stories as they're going and one of the big emphasis in those ongoing conversations has been just music rights. And uh, when these shows were being syndicated and, and replayed on television and such, uh, they could have the original soundtrack. When they jumped into DVD sales, a lot of them had to, to shift soundtrack because it was shifting the media. And then when it was on uh, streaming services, of course, it's a different soundtrack, the original. And there, there's a lot of kind of intricacies in this development and the rights that the quote unquote new media has shifted quite drastically. And so one of the questions we all have to ask is why did this willingly put the Black Widow film uh, into streaming that prompted the Scarlet Johansson lawsuit. And if, if it's going to be, you know, less of a profitable adventure than going through just at least, why do it? But there's a greater control. It's pulling people to that streaming service, right? The more that's on there, they're fighting for market space and market share over other streaming services. And uh, there's there's kind of that ongoing control that they have of their product that they can release in different ways down in the future, that they don't have to fight with all these other branches and avenues. What I'm understanding is basically in this case, you know, for the example, in that example, Disney is making decisions to make the overall company profitable, not necessarily an individual project, but because people who are going into, like people who are making that project are paid by the project, not by the overall success of the company. They're getting kind of screwed. Is that a correct assessment? Yeah, there's competing models that, that are really coming head to head in film and in the tech sector all over the place here. Um, traditionally, you're, you're expecting that box office payout to be where the chunk of the money comes from. You really don't have a box office payout when you do uh, a streaming service release of one of these products. It's nowhere near the same. Um, as mentioned here, the profit margin and the income. But you're not just fighting for uh, people to subscribe and, and watch Black Widow. You're, you're fighting for membership fees, right? Subscription fees of people wanting that over Netflix or Peacock or whatever else is out there. You're trying to bring them to your product and convince them to not just to pirate your film, but that the subscription fee is worth it because there's all this other content. This does make me wonder what like consumer responsibility looks like in this context, because like Monica, you brought up the example earlier about like fast fashion. And while we all have different experiences with the fashion industry based off of what we can pay for and all that kind of thing, like I do think that it's fair to say that like if you, if you want to be a responsible consumer and you care about people who are working garment manufacturing, you should at least try and limit your consumption of like at least overconsumption of fast fashion. I wonder if there's something comparable as far as consumer habits to maybe not like actually intervene in this situation, but at least try and minimize harm. Kind of speaking upon that is is that then going back to this whole idea of all of us being stuck in our houses for six plus months is I feel like the mass consumer of TVs and movies, the the majority of people, just everyday people, they realize that and they expect at this point that they should get movies on demand the same day that they're supposed to be released in theaters. That they don't mind thirty dollars in order to watch the movie so that they don't have to go to the movie theater and it is I it's going to be interesting to see what happens but like you know rumor on the street is is that movie theaters are kind of going to be a thing of the past 
soon because no one wants to go to the movie theater, pay $20 and pay an additional $20 for snacks on top of that. Like people realize, I think they were realizing it before COVID even happened, but more people are realizing now like, hey, that's money that I don't want to spend. And unfortunately, in my mind, and this goes back, this goes to fast fashion as well, is the majority of consumers think about themselves, think about the cost coming out of their pocket. So that we don't want to spend the money, but also we don't have it, especially when you do to millennials and younger, we are making much less money proportionally to older generations, you know, other than some some outliers, uh, i.e. Mark Zuckerberg has, I think it's almost exactly half of all the wealth of American millennials uh, in his pocket as an individual. And so I wonder if part of it is also like, it's not necessarily that we don't, it, like, I wonder if it's, do we not want to go to theaters anymore? Or is it because the labor market is so screwed up nationally that we do want to go to theaters. We just don't collectively have enough money to go to theaters. I want to go to the well, not right now, because as I said, literally last week, I couldn't handle all the people eating popcorn in the theater because of, you know, COVID um, right now. But I want to go to the theater. When Movie Pass was a thing, I abused that. I abused that so much. I I am the reason Movie Pass went bankrupt. I think, honestly, like, I was paying a dollar a movie the amount of times I used that thing. And then, like, AMC A-List, it wasn't, like, as good of a deal but to be fair, like nothing was going to ever be as good of a deal as MoviePass, but it seemed sustainable to pay $20 a week and you could go to any movie, go to Dolby, go to IMAX, do 3D if that's your jam, which it's not mine, but still, like, you you know, you could see three movies a week um, and only pay $20 a person and, like, if you saw enough movies, like, it was great and I think it was, like, go until COVID happened, it was going well for AMC, it seemed, because people were going to the movies more and they were like, oh, I don't have to spend $20 a couple every time I want to go to the theater I guess I can indulge in this beer or like have a popcorn even though it's outrageously expensive I can treat myself and then COVID happened and it's also weird because AMC is like trying to like get people back to the movie theater right now with like a million millions of dollars ad campaign that's like but do people want to go to the movies right now because you know pandemic I mean the, the problem with the theater is still that like as laborers we're still not seeing yep. that money like, yeah. like it's, yep. it's yep. nice and romanticized to be like, let's just give it to the theater. Oh, yeah. But it's still not making its way into the pocket of the people no. who made that movie, which is still the issue. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, like what? Every big movie like owes some creative behind the scenes money from a contract dispute. Well, that's a, probably an over-exaggeration. But. So I remember when we're talking about the pandemic and we're talking about the amount of subscriptions that Netflix gained. Um, one, because everyone was was openly upset that there wasn't two things to watch, which for me made me very upset because I was like, are you saying that you want me to go to work right now? Are you saying that, that me making your TV show is more important in the scope of a global pandemic? But, but beyond that, uh, I was working for a Netflix show at the time. And I remember the first two weeks of the pandemic, Netflix sent out this email that was like, everyone gets to go home for two weeks and we're going to pay you because it's the right thing to do. And then after two weeks, because we all know that the pandemic lasted a lot longer longer than that, we got crickets and we got no more money. And yet we could see the news about how many more subscriptions were being purchased during that point in time. And and when you do, there's a point of it, there's a part of me that's like, I'm going to go to the math because, you know, I got to believe that you got a lot more subscriptions than you had current Netflix employees out of work that like, even if you just donated that $8 to me, like something, something, I know it's only $8, but there was just sort of no accountability towards any of the people who helped make this even possible for you to have profit that was really mm -hmm. hard to stomach. I remember Netflix actually getting a huge amount of good PR for that email they sent out with two weeks. I remember reporting on that specifically. I mean, we've seen that in, in massive companies throughout the pandemic. E-retailers of Netflix and all these things had record years during the pandemic. Like when most individuals were, you know, suffering to one degree or another, these companies were making profits and that was not going down to the their workers almost at all, which I think is like, I mean, part of why unions are important, y'all, because relying on the generosity of companies whose responsibility is to their shareholders and to their profit, like their profit margins, but not to their workers, like without without unions to 
push back on that, you know, most of these companies will just keep tipping away at those at, like at workers. And I, I also want to just put a footnote caveat in there. I, I, you know, talked about how AMC list was good for me as a consumer who wanted to go to the movies. But I also know AMC is really disgusting toward their workers. And I feel conflicted about it's it's that thing that we've always said, which I think we stole from the good place, which is it feels like there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. So when you when we discuss seeing theaters kind of potentially going under going, we have to keep in mind what they're being with. And it goes back to this comment that these companies want their content to be film quality, film ready, uh, even though the production method is so much cheaper in some way. Uh, and that's making streaming services available on these, right? So the technology that that requires, the devices that it requires to watch on, making the home experience rival uh, or surpass that of a theater experience. And then you have theaters trying to update to rival that technology, you know, better chairs, more spacing for people, which means less people per video, you know, things, all of this nature. It's, it's saying that there's no ethical consumption under capitalism is absolutely right. Because every one of these individual companies involved with the viewing of a film, right? Whether it's your iPhone that you're going to watch it on, whether it's a Dell laptop that you're going to watch it on, Fire Stick TV, all that stuff. There, there's all these different companies vying and they all have to try and find profitability. And there's workers in all of those steps that are getting erased and not being taken care of every step of them. the more complicated this process gets, which is very complicated, the more workers are vulnerable and suffer. And I think also the harder it is to define where the problems are taking place. Like to your point earlier yeah. about erasure, I think the more complicated I've experienced this in like tech companies, the more complicated and multifaceted like a product is and the more people have to go in to developing it. It's not only just like there are more costs in terms of labor, but it's easier for either intentionally or through, you know, or unintentionally uh, through neglect. Like it is much easier for groups of workers to fall through the cracks and get ignored and become invisible. And then once that happens, like the, the ground is ripe for basically like massive exploitation of those folks. That's the crux of the tech industry right now in gig workers. It's mm -hmm. the process is mystified. Oh, we don't know where the money is going to come from for this new technology, right? Um, we keep seeing statements like this. And it, this happened back in the 1970s with comic books um, as they were developing the new Com Copyright Act of 1976. Disney actually went in and said, uh, oh, yeah, you know, com comic books are so complicated. Um, creators can't possibly be held as the originator or owner of a, a copyright. It can really only be film companies that own comic books. And if you take this away from us, we won't be able to develop big blockbuster film. This is testimony in Congress. And uh, that kind of got taken. And and we at the same time, it was going on in the music industry, right? Um, along with tech innovations every step of the way, they're often coming in order to erase workers and to de-skill the labor involved so that the wages... This is probably a little bit off topic of film, but I think the other part of it is also like using technology to, to your point, undermine the value of workers. For example, like automation, there's been like several reports about this, but like artificial intelligence, like AI automation, and especially like consumer facing products. So say like your average customer service bot or something like that is massively oversold. Most of those bots either aren't very effective um, because there's no humans behind them or, um, which I think a lot of consumers aren't aware of, there actually are people behind those bots. I used to be one of them um, that are on average not paid very well, usually in gig work. And because, but because we think it's AI and we don't think that there's people behind it, we just are like, there's like, oh, well, that obviously it must be really cheap to administer and it must be complete. And it's, it's not problematic because there can't be workers being exploited. It's like there are workers that intentionally companies will not let you know about because they want to be able to sell their product as automated when it's not. I mean, yeah. even streaming, I feel like is the illusion of all of that. I mean, when we get back to the fact that like you just sort of like skip over the credits to the next thing and there's always like a recommendation of something else to watch something about the like the sheer quantity of it makes you feel like there could have never been people who made all of these things. Isn't like some of the stories um, about certain Netflix shows like, oh, the algorithm told us that we should put things <laughs> together. So like the, 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 the I heard the that you like monsters and, and disaster weather. So we made you Sharknado. Um. Yeah. <laughs> like the, the narrative even just like removes like the creative element from it in some ways. I just love the irony of like Netflix running on an alg a recommendation algorithm while also making multiple TV shows about how algorithms are killing us all. Specifically about how algorithms in media are making us horrible people. And it's like, 
I, the, the cognitive dissonance is strong. What? What? Oh, yes. What? What show did I don't remember? There was some show about this that I Black oh, Mirror. Yeah, no, I was thinking about Face Jam: New Legacy, actually, and I had just protected <laughs> my memory. <laughs> Um, cause it was just so traumatizing for me to watch. Um, that's the wrong word, but just like, it was so bad. It was the worst thing I've ever seen. And I just, I forgot was a thing, but I was confused by it. And I think that it's message. If there is one is algorithms are bad and it's an hour and a half or more. I'm not sure how long it is. It's an infinity, but also not. Um, I think it's just like a movie made to prove this to you because it, it seems made by algorithm. Anyway, that's a non sequitur. Yeah. It's, algorithms are bad, but I think more specifically is like algorithms are not as specific and they're not as like the panacea that people seem to think they are. People seem to think that algorithms are somehow like the key to unlocking universal knowledge because they can go through massive amounts of data, blah, 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 and like create aggregated information, which like the algorithm is only as smart as the person making it. And as we've learned over the last several years, some of the people designing these algorithms did not think very clearly about how they were making those algorithms. Anyway, this is probably a subject for another episode. (laughs) I I was going to say, it might be a whole movie about algorithms. But I can still tell you that I worked next to the costume department of Space Jam. Those are all real people who had to put together that terrible movie. And you know what? They worked really, really long hours to make that. To make that for us all to hate it. And and so maybe, again, if we're talking about this being a, top, uh, a top-down problem, you know, it's let's stop rolling the, like, I always make the joke that executives must have, like, two dice. Uh, and it's kind of like the exercise dice, but one of them is, like, an actor that they like, and the other one is a premise that made a lot of money at the box office in the past five years and they just roll them and then they come out with something. And so maybe maybe it's the checks and balances of, I get that these are corporations that are always going to want to make money, but maybe if we just made a little less, maybe if we just made less things, then everyone wouldn't be so overexploited in the process. Uh, have any of you heard the term the idiot football? No. It's, please, please. I, it's I used in writer's rooms in, in Hollywood. And um, if for anyone who followed the 2000 2008 Writers Guild strike, which is different than a year. Um, if you followed their strike and what went, uh, some of them talk a lot about the idiot football. And so what's going on and like you have your favorite sitcom that you watch every week. And uh, one day when you, you tune in, you're like, man, this character really acted differently this week. And it was, you know, they were just being an idiot for no reason. Right. Um, or you tune into your favorite like teen romance drama film and they're like, well, you know, if you just said this one thing, you would have avoided the whole problem, but you're being an idiot the whole movie. And we, we see this a lot. And it's like artificially created drama that doesn't have like a, a realistic premise behind it. And it's the idiot football. And so when a group of writers are coming into the room each week, they have to turn this material out so quickly. They have to pick a character to carry the idiot football that, right? Someone who's going to act out of character and do something stupid to create a storyline that can push all the material for. And it often comes along with eventually you get jumping the shark because someone carried too big of an idiot football or for too long or too far. And it breaks what the storyline can be after and so that process, it's the, the capitalization, right, of this, uh, of turning out the media, exactly as Maka said, it's too much too fast, rather than producing like an artistic uh, project in which everybody could work humane hours, they could get paid a humane amount of money and take the time to do something uh, realistic, that, that that's earnest and worthwhile consume. I, I have a technical question um, that might be too deep, but would you mind saying like, what is different about the Writers Guild and like a union or? people who might not be industry insiders? Yeah, it's an important distinction here. Um, as some folks will recall during the Writers Guild strike in 2007, not all productions shut down, right? A lot of them did. Uh, you still got up new episodes of Family Guy. Um, and Seth MacFarlane, one of the writers, still provided a voice, but he didn't do writing duties, right? And so what you, what you have is, firstly, the labor in Hollywood is separated into different groups that we've mentioned, but not all of them can work in a union. And the reason being... In 1947, the Taft-Hartley Act comes along, and what it does is it restricts how unions can operate, what they can do legally, and who can be included. And there's a whole group of workers that can't be included, and this is independent contract. The rationality behind this are independent contractors are essentially the same as like a small business. And so if every bar in your town got together and made an agreement to sell alcohol at $15 a bottle or, or $30 a bottle, you wouldn't have anywhere else to go. It'd be a monopoly, right? This would be a problem. And so you can't let certain groups unionize because they're not actually employees. And this is where the distinction begins. So your 
uh, IATSE workers that are potentially preparing to strike right now, they are classified as employees. But a lot of your gig workers are either part-timers in such a situation that they don't get qualified as them, uh, because they're independent contractors. They're working a gig, something that's for a limited period of time. So they can't be quantified as an employee. Those folks tend to be historically artisans, craftspeople, such as writers, um, which is a very kind of skilled field of a sort. And they're able to band together into a labor organization of a guild. It's different than a union. And they have different legal classifications, ramifications, and abilities under the system. Beyond a guild, which is for kind of craftspeople that are working independent contracts, uh, you also have a professional association. And each of these kind of have less and less power as you go. A professional, there's uh, producers, LA, have a uh, producers guild, right? Association. And it's it's a professional association that really just kind of monitors who gets to call themselves that thing and who gets to be included, uh, how they typically operate, but they can't do things like set a weight. Yeah, for example, so, uh, the producers guild offer health and with some views, uh, the way that um, costumer union does. Yeah, exactly. So you have an, a professional association and it's there, there's a historical stratification of skilled versus unskilled labor. Bit of a myth because no labor is skilled. But mm. uh, so your professionals would be in one association. Then you would have guild workers that not quite the full power of a union. There's certain things, there's certain how they operate. And then you have a union, which is full on employees protecting against uh, definite power imbalance with the employer. That's really helpful. And also fascinating because when I think about like how many, like I, I, I wonder how much the labor, like the labor situation and what you're talking about um, with that, sort of like, especially like legal, the legal designations behind it has impacted how, because we were talking a little bit ago about how Silicon Valley and sort of like tech companies have been creating all kinds of new, not even really new, reinventions of old gig work models uh, yeah. and then reintroducing them. And I wonder how much of that is just because of like the geographic overlap between, you know, Los Angeles, Hollywood and Silicon Valley of how much they're drawing inspiration. Like those companies are drawing inspiration from basically the ways that the film and TV industry has learned to basically kind of screw over their workers. I, I wouldn't point to it geographically myself because we see it across the nation, uh, for example, in higher ed, uh, the adjunctification, mm. right? So 20 years ago, a tenure track faculty person was a real thing. And now they're incredibly rare. Uh, it's most I think it's 75% of higher ed instructors are on some form in adjunct or faculty and uh, universities across the city have developed new classifications such as a clinical professor, which can teach something as art history. And by the way, there's no clinic when you're in art history in a program. Um, it's not like there's a medical clinic right, doing your clinical trial, but they use that term and they employ someone as a full-time professor, but it's not tenure track. And suddenly you've subverted their ability to be part of that union. And so since the 1970s, especially, with new tech innovation, they develop new uh, types of workers that cannot stand in solidarity with the previous workers that were organized. And so it pits them against each other in a competing field. You've had this, again, you know, in comic artists, it developed with a colorist back in the 1930s, even um, the, the modern colorist was developed to undercut a union. And this process continues. And we're seeing it in different forms of the craft workers within film. New technology shifts and innovates out a previous skilled worker position that had kind of some standing with you. We're seeing it in Silicon Valley. You, know, you got the whole like Apple method, right? Where your company, all the, the software workers, it's a, almost like a family. It's real casual. You don't have to wear a suit. You come in. You're pitching ideas, man. Everybody's part of the conversation. Oh, you've just erased a, a standard structure of labor that protected workers. And now that they're working for maybe five years at most in a single gig before they're, they're shunted off to another, you've they've lost all protection. And so we have deeply unstable labor practices across the country through gigification and contract work, which is no longer nearly as stable. And we've created a condition in which people want often that gig freedom to work multiple jobs. Maybe they want to be a comic book writer, but it's not lucrative enough. So they do that as side work. And so they need other gig works that allows them that freedom. And it breaks down their ability to have this protection that so many have fought for. And I, I feel like it cannot be emphasized enough that you, an average person might think, well, if I go get a law degree or if I get a PhD, surely like that much time and experience and education will make sure like I, if I want a stable job I can have a stable job and that's not true like the attorney market is saturated so there's all sorts of gig work with things like uh, e-doc review and stuff that's also like very exploitive but the saturation's a bit of a myth so when you're, you're absolutely right and that's the numbers that we're seeing 
But when we see the issues on, for example, the border crisis over the past few years of immigrants coming in, one of the, the comments we've had back is, well, we can't process these individuals fast enough through documentation. There's not enough judges and lawyers to handle them. But there's all of these out of work law degree individuals. We're not funneling people where they're needed, where they can be, because that artificially created saturation allows individuals to drive down, just drive yeah. down salaries and drive down. That's that's a really great um, point. Thank you um, for making sure that was made. But also, like, this is true of higher ed, too. Like, yeah. um, I literally saw an article where, like, some undergraduates will not be able to take the amount of credits to be fully enrolled because they don't have enough teachers to teach the courses at their university. Yeah, because we're in a labor market where, and I imagine this is probably true of the entertainment industry as well. It's like we're in a labor market where I know multiple people who have PhDs who have left, you know, teaching positions, sometimes at fairly, you know, well-respected universities to go be baristas because that is a more stable career path and a higher paid career path for them, despite having, you know, a decade or more of training and experience in publications. I think I think what's coming out of me, like sticks out to me out from this conversation is that this, this union fight, like, yes, it's in the entertainment industry. And yes, there are some aspects of the conditions that seem unique, but it sounds like it's a massive bellwether of like what's going on nationally across the labor market. And, and I don't, I actually don't know this for a fact. I probably should have beforehand, but like my perception is that, I mean, the, the entertainment union is probably one of the largest and maybe one of the stronger unions we have left. And so what happens now is going to have ramifications for what labor, like the labor movement as a whole. It is huge. It's like 43,000 people here in LA that are part of this potential negotiation and potential strike. And maybe that's also what makes it so important. And so I guess sad that we're in this position is because we see everyone being exploited and unions are the things that are meant to, you know, for you to be able to have a voice. Like that's why they were invented and brought up is, is to be able to have something to stand up against all of these systemic problems. And, and the fact that, you know, right now this union is having to threaten strike just for basic protections of their workers. Well, what also just popping really makes this so unique, this uh, potential strike of IASI is, and Monica, I think you mentioned it, is this is one of the first times that we've all come together as a whole collective because, and I looked it up because I said it and I was like, I don't feel like that's right. But IASI, a union group that is over the whole country. So it's like not just California. And I think that's like what I forget as like someone who works primarily in California and Los Angeles, you know, it just in general, it's like we always laugh like LA and California is such like a little happy bubble like it's its own bubble like literally that's how I feel a lot but it's not just LA it's New York it's Canada and it's all of these other unions that IOPI gets probably and I'm guessing Atlanta has unions that are a pro- are part of IOPI it's, it's the whole country it's not just LA and I think that's like something that I I keep because it's like we are talking about it so much here because I do think that a good chunk of the workforce is based in LA but it's not just LA Canada it's New York it's probably Atlanta it's probably New Orleans like it, it's countrywide and so it, it's going to affect a lot of different things but also we're all coming together and I think it is that one of the first times and I don't know this offer a fact but usually what winds up happening and it kind of goes to what's been said is is that a lot of times the producers and kind of the the even just the you know production companies hit us against each other so that we within our own selves within our individual unions we don't like that something another union is getting or we don't like something else that another union that the producers gave them or, you know, like we are so in a way they purposely pit us against ourselves. So the fact that we're even coming together and being like, yo, there's a problem. I mean, I think speaks unto the strike unto itself because it's crazy because for the most part, I wouldn't even say that we are, uh, we're all on the same, like we're not. Every union is definitely not on the same page, but have we come together to agree upon these main four things? There's other things we're asking for, but like these main four topics. Yeah, we've all come together and we're like yes these are four things we would all cross. And I have to say, as someone who has worked uh, IATSE union productions in smaller film networks across the country, those are actually the places where I saw, I guess, more abuses of union rules or places where producers were more willing to... You can you can pay a union penalty. For example, if you don't want to break for lunch on time, um, you can pay the union a certain amount of money and then continue and push lunch off to later, which again affects all of the people who are actually doing the work. And yeah, some of us 
appreciate that it comes with a little extra money, but a lot of us are just really hungry and really want to break. <laughs> and, and so it's nice that the union has that afforded in place, but there's also this established power structure where the producers still by paying the fees, like saying we are in charge and we're, we have so much money that we can sort of disregard your rules anyway, which is in itself frustrating. Where does that fee go? It, like it does go to your paycheck. Uh, okay. If you are in the union, but it, but it's it, what it's saying though is that we're willing to like pay you, and we think that like you'll just do anything for a little extra money rather than like treating you like a human being that might need a break or might need your nine hour turnaround time. And and anytime I've worked in these IATSE in these smaller uh, like regional places, I've seen just so much more of that, which makes it just even more important in my for the LA locals to be the ones to take stand because it does have the power to affect the nationwide IATSE if they choose to stand in solidarity. I'm wondering if that's also on the part of the producers that do that strategic because either consciously or unconsciously, because I would also imagine, yes, it's good that the unions have that provision in terms of like, if they violate union rules, they get that penalized and it goes to your paycheck. But I could also imagine producers doing that and basically showing them, oh, here's how your union isn't working. Because I've definitely been in situations where administrators try to use, like I've seen, I've seen administrators trying to point out like, oh, well, here's how we could use this policy against you as a way to basically undermine your faith in the union. And it's like, yeah, union policies, as I think, you know, you've really pointed out really well, Monica, it's like union policies are not perfect. Uh, like, unfortunately. But we need them. Right. But like, A, it's better than nothing. And B, it's like, if you have a union in place, I mean, this is what I used to tell people. There are things that they could, about an individual union, like about the union that I ran, it's like, it can and should be better. But it's like, until we, like, we can't fix those things unless we have a union at all. Yes. Exactly. Well, speaking upon kind of what Monica was saying, well, like the example with Grace, it's called Grace, which means that they're being like, okay, cool, we're going to push for lunch and we're calling Grace. And what Grace is, is they get 15 more minutes and they don't have to pay us for a meal penalty. So even then, there's loopholes. So it, it, there's loopholes within the loopholes within the loopholes. There's always a loophole. And like talking about like going back to Monica saying like she's been on a show where someone gotten in a car wreck driving home because they're too tired. That happens all the time you know, shouldn't happen at all. And the only time anyone ever really hears about it is when it's an actor or someone who's, you know, the public seems more important. But what's crazy about that is the production company gets grieved and they have to pay a penalty. And depending on what it is, that penalty price change, like the penalty changes. And it's only when they break a whole bunch of union rules will unions call for a strike against that specific production company. And you'll get an email being like, hey, everyone, we're calling for a strike against this production or this production, not even a production company, but against this production that's being filmed because they've broken too many rules. But it, it doesn't happen until they break more than one rule. And in fact, I don't even think it happens until they break lots of rules. So it's like producers get to kind of tow this line or production companies get to tow this line that they're like, okay, cool, cool, cool. How far can we push before it's too far? It's like high stakes chicken, but with unions. Yeah. And with, with people who, by the way, if you crash your car on the way to and from work, that's not covered by production. That's going through your insurance. That's your expense because it was your car when you're off the clock. They're not going to pay for those medical bills, which is why being in a union, we have good insurance, thankfully. That's not their fault. That's, oh, sorry. And it's like anytime you get injured at work too, they're like, oh, let's call the medic right away so they can write up a report. So if you do wind up having to go to a hospital later on because you fell off the costume when you were working, which has happened to any of the people, including myself, like you don't, like part of you, like I've done it before where I'm like, no, I don't want to talk to the medic. I don't want to have to sit there for an hour. I, at this point, I just want to go home and go to bed. And if I need to go to the hospital later, I will go to the hospital on my own time because I don't want to be here. And I just want to go home. I don't want to sit here and wait another two hours before I can leave because I have to fill out all of this paperwork if I wind up going to the hospital. So it's like that kind of thing where it's like, well, no, you should sit there and you should fill out that paperwork because if you do wind up going to the hospital, then the union will, the the production will have to pay for your help pay for the medical bills because you got injured at work. But they make it so complicated that most people choose not to report it while they're at work because they don't want to deal with it.
of it. No, and I've heard similar things of I have I have family in the in construction workers unions in the Midwest, and I've heard similar things of like, and it creates a lot of bad blood between workers and unions because the way that negotiations have gone down, it's like I think it's a combination often of things that go wrong in negotiations, so that basically in this case would be producers like adding things to the contract that create these loopholes or at least create possibilities for loopholes down the line. And then on top of that is like then the union bureaucracy. Like I, I mean, as much as like I am pro union, there are definitely unions who are more effective for in negotiations for over over others. There are some whose ethics align more with my own than others. It's like any other institutional structure. And I think that's why it's like I'm very specific about like you have to get to the point of like where you have a union before you can start intervening and making the, a union better. And to me, that's not like the fact that unions aren't ideal in all contexts is not a reason to not support unions. You, you can you can fix and move towards a better situation once you have one. However, you're you're just kind of like at status quo without a union or something that looks like it. I'm proud to be a member of two unions. However, am I happy with both of the unions that I am? No. Are there issues that need to be resolved within our own unions? Yes. Like I'm sorry. Like and I've told Monica before. It's like you go to one of our union meetings. It's a literal joke sometimes. So it, it's like yeah, I'm grateful to be a part of unions, but do my own individual unions that I am part of need a lot of inner working out? Yes. There's a couple different angles to this. Um, part of like a union sluggishness, why they'll settle for uh, collecting a kind of grievance fee from a company rather than going on strike over the whole issue can be because they have to think about all of their members. And this may affect a small number of their members, whether it's a weaker coalition or or simply um, going on strike would, would problematically hinder too many. But another side of that, too, is if the union can gain public support. And especially since the 1970s, it has been very difficult for to gain support when they go on and gain the sympathy of the public and to be able to win those cases and get companies to fold. While people are scared of unions and they're driven away from them, it's harder to get the energy to go on strike and have the fun that process. We've had this string of now right to work states, which allow members of unions to collect all the benefits of a union, but not pay into the dues. When dues are not paid, that affects a union's strike fund, right? When they go on strike, they try and pay out their members, they try and keep them uh, fed, uh, be able to keep them on the picket line, etc. So if you have people who are legally allowed to not pay dues, then your unions are getting weaker, especially if they have to expend funds to protect those individuals who are not paying dues. And so across the board, union and labor organizing has been weakened. The other side of this too, though, is that a union is only as strong as its active members that are running for steward positions, uh, executive or steering committee positions that are taking the uh, front lines of this and leading that charge and protecting their most vulnerable individual. A lot of people are kind of uh, tempted away from those because it's un often unpaid extra labor, right? A lot of the work I do for my union and uh, the national movement movements I'm part of or is volunteer labor. And if we don't do it, these things aren't done. But can you afford to do it? Can you afford to invest that time and energy while you're being burned out doing all the other things you have to do in life? And so it, it weakens labor organizing. And this is by design. It's built into the system. So can we resolve that we need more worker solidarity across the board? Yeah, we, we can't do sympathy strikes, though. This is one of these the damn problems that came out of uh, those who broke the New Deal coalition. This Such legal structures as taft Hart and more, we can't do sympathy strikes anymore. And that means uh, when, if and when Yahtzee goes on strike, the higher ed unions, they can't go on a sympathy strike to try and get producers to fold, even though it does affect us down the line. At one point, your garbage collecting individuals could go on a sympathy strike or the busing uh, union, right? And you could support each other in this way and actually have that all worker solidarity. And we legally cannot. It's there. There's problems. Yeah. And depending also on like what kind of union you have, you may not have strike rights at all. Yes. One of the things I feel like was already building, and I think for a lot of people was driven home during the pandemic, was the idea that like we need a labor movement again. And not to say that, again, like to echo everything everyone said, it's like are also institutions that need a lot of input and a lot of intervention as well. But I'm optimistic, especially with like in the context of people being willing to quit jobs more readily than we maybe have in the past. And just like the amount of people that are just fed up, I am optimistic that there is going to be a cultural shift around labor that is going to take a lot of time and energy to turn into something. But I'm optimistic that it, it goes somewhere that's ultimately going to improve conditions for a lot of us in the long run. I would just like to add briefly on that, that the labor movement did begin to surge in 2008. Second, won big in numerous places across the country. And that was on the rise. 
Actually, at that time, Yahtzee was considering a strike during negotiations and rank and file members called for strikes and leadership didn't give in. Uh, and it was around this new media issues, too. That was one of their big issues then. And they decided to hold off. And if we even look at like how Amazon, and Starbucks and numerous other places in the service sector have tried to unionize and the talk of more nurses and medical personnel unionizing the face in, in the wake, uh, we are seeing signs of a very strong lead. I think so much of the problem of the past, we've talked a lot about erasure. We've talked a lot about media depiction, but it's been the fact that when people think of Teamsters, like they think of Jimmy Hoffa when, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like... No, it's very I, real. Um, I, I just feel like we are also at a point in this revolution where we're listening to people more, we're having greater awareness, we're understanding that like people that, you know, that we have been tried to have been erased are, are not and, you know, like are still there to say. And so I guess I also am really hopeful for the direction that this is turning. Hopefully, I feel like hopefully this podcast brought awareness to people that they haven't had before about you and the necessity and the labor that goes into filmmaking. I've said many times, I'll say it one more time publicly, especially in 2020, many corporations and other entities, institutions put out statements committing to diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. And while unions are not the total answer for this whole like conversation for an hour, um, and there are problems in unions, it you can go a long way demonstrating your commitment to equity and diversity and inclusion and accessibility in the workplace by recognizing unions and treating your workers well. I believe we have arrived at the part of the show where we have solved nothing other than uh, labor solidarity. And new media is not new. <laughs> We've talked a lot about new media from a more cultural perspective. It's really interesting to hear that labor perspective. And I feel like once I've percolated on that some more, um, we might need to do an, a, a deeper dive into that in the future. But uh, this has been super enlightening and, and massively educational for me. So I want to thank both of our guests for coming on and sharing their experience and wisdom with us today. Sean, do you have anything you would like to plug for folks that might want to learn more about your work? What I'd like to plug is Higher Ed Labor United. Google search that website and see a move on right now to from Higher Ed involved with the legislation crafted on the Hill right now halt the adjunctification going on. Um, there's an Abisco strike going on right now that people should be paying attention to. It's similar to what's going on with uh, IATSE here. There are workers that are fighting for desperately and deserved uh, rights that are being taken away from them. And I hope people pay attention for strikers wherever they are. I'm excited to follow those and we will link that in the show notes. And E. For me, not necessarily plugging anything. I think just as we've mentioned before, it's important, you know, to realize that not even just streaming, but movies and TV shows, there is a whole group of people behind that. It's not just the actors, the directors, the things that you watch the Academy Award topic for. There are people behind the scenes that don't get the credit that they deserve. And so the next time you are watching a movie or the next time you watch a TV show and you happen to like like the set deck or you happen to like the costumes or you thought the lighting was really cool, go look up who did it on IMDb. Like, take the time to find out who did things. Also, IMDb is also really bad about crediting people because it's the individual production company that has to do it. But like, do some research. Like, find out more about that craft and just like appreciate it for what it actually is. Do that kind of research. Just be like, I was really into the set deck in that who was who what was that team you know is there any articles about there that the the you know the head person did like can i find out more information about this you know make acknowledgement that there's a group of people it's not just the people that you hear about uh, at award shows no I, re I really love that it's a way to show respect for people who spend a lot of time and effort and blood and sweat and tears um making the things that we really and honestly once you do that research go find that person on social media like most of them have professional websites Send them an email. Yes. Say thank you. Say say thank you for inspiring me. Uh, and I love your work because, you know, people in this industry just don't hear it. We hear about how things are uh, behind schedule or being yelled at for something. But there's so very little thanks that actually gets heard by the people who consume the things that you spent so long making. And, and they deserve that. Well, so this week we have homework aside from Vox Podcast. Email a creator you appreciate. <laughs> and uh, Monica, you got anything to share with us this week? No, go do your homework. Do your homework. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know I never have anthem share. I, I'm glad that Sean mentioned the Nabisco strike, um, which uh, you might know as the makers of Oreos. So um no Oreos for me. That's what I got today. Cool. So so we got email your favorite creators, follow unions, and rethink eating your Oreos. Yeah. I have nothing to plug. I'm gonna double down on all of those things. Do all of those things. 
As always, you can follow Vox Popcast on all of the social medias at Vox Popcast. You can follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com where we post about whatever we're going to be talking about in upcoming episodes. Leave comments about what you want us to discuss on those episodes. Suggest new topics for shows. Ask us weird questions that we may or may not answer at some point if we find them interesting. And sometimes uh, we will ask you to be a guest if you uh, share something insightful on one of our uh, upcoming topics. If you enjoyed the show, and we really hope you do, please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or, you know, wherever fine podcasts are sold. And you can always do us a huge favor and leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It helps us out. uses the algorithm. Uh, and you can also follow us on YouTube, where you can listen to our episodes with addition of visual aids and material for your viewing pleasure. I would like to thank all of our guests again uh, for joining us today. I would like to thank you for listening. And finally, I would like to thank Maximilian of Thought for Music for our epic theme song, which is building ever so epically and playing us out. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye!